Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. If you were to ask Sigmund Freud, he'd say he was a specialist in one's sense of identity or one's sense of self or the I. Well, today on the show, we are also going to be specialising in the eye, but this time it's the pair of organs just above your nose. First up, we'll be speaking with Ian Wishart, who just happens to be the CEO of the Fred Hollows Foundation. And is there anybody in Australia who hasn't heard of this quite remarkable organisation? Growing up in Papua New Guinea and then spending time as an aid worker in some of the most needful countries in the world, Ian brings a diverse range of experiences and passion to his job. He'll be bringing us up to date on the work the foundation is doing during the pandemic. Dr. Mark McComb is Director of Ophthalmology at the Royal Victorian Eye and Ear Hospital. Mark has a wide range of interests and in particular likes to focus on the retina, which Dear listeners, you will know is the target of diabetic eye disease and macular degeneration. His other eye interests include trauma, vitreo retinal surgery. Don't you like that? Vitreo retinal surgery. I say that with a French accent. And syphilitic eye disease, which he'll be talking about today. Keeping us all on track and honest will be Amber, who herself has had eye surgery. So she knows from a consumer perspective the kinds of things that are important when heading to theatre. And I'm talking about the operating theatre, not the uh, playhouse theatre. And rounding out the panel today, as always, are my two co-hosts, the effervescent nurse EpiPen and the very psychologically minded Dr. G-Spot. I'm pointing to them in case you can see me, listeners. We'll be catching up with some of the latest medical research, playing a few tunes and generally making medicine a little bit more accessible. So stick with me, Dr. Mal, for the next hour of radiotherapy. Good morning, Nurse EpiPen. Morning. You were dancing to that uh, intro theme. I love how you get so excited when that intro theme comes on. Uh, do, you, do you know what? Somebody said to me about three years, four years ago, uh, do you do Zoom? And I've gone, you must be joking. What's Zoom? Oh, and she said, oh, you just talk through a camera and a computer. And I thought, no, oh, no, face-to-face. No, no. Give me face-to-face any day. Mm. And look at us now. You just say Zoom and you go, when? I thought you were going to say Zumba. And you were dancing too. Oh, I've done of those Zumba things. too. Yeah, but, you know, let's, we're Zooming now, so I'm talking about the now. Do you reckon they do Zumba over Zoom? They do. Really? Yeah. Get away. Seriously, you can do anything via Zoom. Right. My sister did yeah. a tap dancing class via Zoom yesterday. Get out of here. Yeah, didn't go all that well because <laughs> the teacher w- couldn't wear her tap shoes because it's too noisy in the apartment she lives in. So she was doing it. Didn't, wasn't as great. You cannot make this stuff up, can you? You can't. What, what do you reckon? What do you reckon, um, uh, Dr. G-Spot? Can you make this stuff up? No, not at all. I'm loving the uh, Zoom Zumba. Uh, I think that's something for a future show, for sure. We should, we should have a show on things you can and can't do over Zoom, don't you reckon? Most definitely. I don't think there'd be very much. <laughs> well, well the, the physical bits and pieces of life might. We're not going to so well. True. I think probably virtual reality technology is still catching up there, but I don't think we're too far away. Huh. Where's your mind going? Hey, um, somebody else is trying to get into our show. I just heard somebody else. At the door. At the door. But um, let's just do this. Hey, um, 
Dr. G-Spot, tell, you, yes. you've been, I know that you are an academic. You were on your way to, to the heights of academia. I can just see you as Professor Dean probably of medicine. Um, <laughs> but until, actually there is a spot open, at, uh, like they're looking for Dean applications at the moment. I was thinking of throwing my hat into the ring. Oh, really? Well, I didn't get. I didn't get the email. <laughs> Quickly, I'm not. I'm not in contention. Oh, it was a very selective process, Doctor Mal. <laughs> now, tell us. Given that you are um, one of uh, uh, academia's bright sparks, you've been scaring the research for the latest in uh, medical news. Tell us what you found. I actually have two stories, Dr. Mao, but if we only have time for one, that's totally fine. Yeah, yeah. One of them is a shameless self-promotion, which I hope you'll allow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I came on the show probably about October last year talking about a project I'm leading with the Butterfly Foundation mm-hmm. and it's our chatbot Kit. Um, so Kit turned six months old on the 19th of May, so we're very proud of our chatbot baby. And uh Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Kit was designed to help um, people with their body image and eating issues while they're using social media. And that was something that was really problematic, um, particularly during the pandemic and and particularly with another lockdown in Victoria. And so what we found is Kit the chatbot, who is able to have um, human-like conversations, um, has spoken with over 9,500 people since launching in November 2020, which is a huge number. So we're really, really proud of chatbot Kit and we've had lots of positive feedback. So we're really looking forward to working towards Kit's first birthday, um, which will be in November 2021. And I encourage people to check out Kit, who lives on the Butterfly website, a cute little green creature and the butterfly website is www.butterfly.org.au and of course if this um if talking about eating disorder issues has impacted you i recommend you call the butterfly helpline at 1-800-33-4673 so just tell us kit is a ai bot is that right that's right. So utilising that that new technology of conversational AI and um, Kit's improving every time someone speaks with Kit. Kit is learning every time. So that's really, really cool. That's very exciting. So you've got, you must be working with a team of uh, programmers. We are. We are. So uh, in addition with the wonderful team at Butterfly, we're yeah. also utilising the services at Proxima. So a big shout out to that team who have done us a wonderful service in developing Kit. And just tell us, I mean, two, two questions leap to my mind. One is, why did you call the bot Kit? Was that after the Knight Rider car? And secondly, um, uh, are there other chat bots for psychological things out there? There are so um, sort of a no and a yes to your two answers there, Dr. Bao. Um, so it was a team of millennials coming up with Kit. So we weren't really onto the David Hasselhoff Night Rider show. However, we are more than happy to leverage that wonderful show um, <laughs> in order to promote Kit's popularity. Um, and uh, I think Kit uh, Night Rider Kit mm. is K I double T, and our Kit has only one T. And uh, in terms of other AI bots, do you know what? There's not heaps around. Mm. Um, it's becoming more of a thing. Kit is a world first positive body image chat bot. So that's mm. why we're super proud of Kit. Mm. Mm. Um, but there are other bots, um, for example, Wobot and Wissa, who are helping us with um, a pre- a depression and anxiety symptoms. Mm. So check those out too. Mm. And there's also the uh, Lifeline, Be a Lifeline chat bot on Twitter. So they're becoming more of a thing. But it, it takes time to to build a chatbot and launch it and test it and all those things. I'm fascinated by this. Um, 
have you done any research, qualitative research, you know, asking questions rather than um, tick boxes? Yes. Have you done qualitative research on ha- what people feel and how they, what their vibe is like interacting with a bot compared to a, a, a real life person? Oh, Dr. Mao, you are serving this up to me beautifully. Um, (laughs) We've actually just had a paper accepted into the Journal of Medical Internet Research, JMIR, asking for people's experiences with kit, just as you're asking there. So check out JMIR in the near future and we will have that research for you. Um, And what people were saying was uh, because kit has a very cute character attached, people felt like kit was more human-like or... or had, I suppose, more um, more empathy for them. And I think if you don't have a character, that can be really challenging. Like if it's just a text bot, people won't feel as connected. So I think anyone out there developing an uh, AI chatbot for mental health purposes, make sure you have a really cute or cool character associated with it. Well, I imagine you'd also have to make sure that it's a it's kind of aimed at your target audience too. Exactly. A little cat, uh, you know, wouldn't appeal to somebody like me. I mean, you'd have to have... I don't know. Who would you have appealing to somebody? Maybe you would have the Knight Rider. I'd have David Hasselhoff Uh, talking to me. (laughs) And Dr G, what's the voice like? We actually don't have a voice, um, EpiPen. Oh, it's purely text. We would. Right. I think that's. I think that's for the future, though. I mean, gosh, we were. Um, we actually did have some audio parts to Kit, and we were like, "Oh, do we get like Nicole Kidman and mm. Hugh Jackman to record mm. that for us?" They weren't available, sadly, for our budget. <laughs> so, so I end up doing quite a bit of voicing for Kit. So Kit sounds mm. a lot like me at times. I know. Ugh. Um, no, I, didn't say, uh, I said. Mm. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> um, so yes I think um, I suppose Kit is a really long-term project so you know if you're listening Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman if you want you know your best gig ever as Kit's voice please get in contact so just to remind us again how people find Kit if they want to so Kit is on the Butterfly website as a pop-up uh, as I said Kit is a green character um, and you just go to www.butterfly.org.au and you will find Kit right there on the homepage. Absolutely fantastic. Thank um, you. Okay. I'm throwing to you what, for, for ketchup. So, oh, cat, I haven't got ketchup oh, today. Oh, sorry. sorry no, I no, no, no. Okay. So, no, no. I have Jenna. story. I go. have story too. Story number two. Okay. okay. So smooth. Loving it. Um, you can tell we're live radio, can't you? You so can. Um, so something that I was reading recently published in PLOS One by uh, Lee et al. And I thought it really spoke to what we've been experiencing in Victoria the past sort of week and a half, just in lockdown um, after not being in lockdown for a little while. And um, it was talking about how little kids, I suppose, learn to take direction. And I know a lot of people are struggling with homeschooling and things like that at the moment. So um I often find that parents will say, like, you know, a little kid will say, well, why do I have to do this? And the parent says, because I say so. And I've got some advice for parents on the basis of this as to how they can help that answer because I say so. Because I don't know, Dr. Mal and EpiPen, do you find that because I say so works? It's been a while. No, yeah, it's been. But, <laughs> but, and what about oh, when parents say, oh, do you want a smack? No, no, goodness, no, you never say oh. goodness. No. <laughs> That was oh, our era. Yes. That was yeah. our era. <laughs> Love one. 
Um, so, uh, well, that's, you know, maybe maybe grandkids in the future for Dr. Mal and Nurse EpiPen. Uh, um, <laughs> in, in the distant future, though, not don't, right now. Don't you just say uh, cause? It's just cause. Yeah. It's just cause. Cause. Yeah. It's just cause. Yeah. And so I suppose what, what they did in this study, which I thought was so cool, um, was they recruited 104 three-and-a-half-year-old children and they were invited to set up for a tea party. And they asked these kids what items they wanted to bring to the tea party. And the children gave their preferences, you know, a cup of tea or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then they got these, I suppose, people who were helping with the experiment, so both adults and children, to nominate another choice. But they phrased that as a normative um, statement. So something like, we always use this kind of tea for our parties. Mm. So using that we. And what they found Mm. was that the kids were more likely to change their personal preference when it was phrased as a we. So if you're, you know, if you're trying to get your young person to cooperate with what you're doing, say that we normally or we usually, and that will often make them more compliant. And it talks about, I suppose, even kids as young as three and a half wanting to fit in with group and cultural norms, which is so interesting that even at that early age, they want to be part of the group and comply with the group. So in terms of, you know, um, we do homeschooling or we sit mm. down when the teacher talks mm. to us. That mm. might be a better phrase than because I said so. I'm, At least it's worth a try. I'm just thinking if I said um, because we clean up the dishes after dinner, <laughs> my kids would say, so go ahead and do yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> you can go ahead and do it. No, we. we. That is true. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, and I think emphasise the we, right? This yeah, is our family we. norm. <laughs> that we clean up the dishes after dinner. And you, I know your kids are a little bit older than three and a yeah. half, Dr. Mal. I'm going to try um, I'm going to try it tonight. Yeah. I'll get back to you. No, I think that's actually, to okay. be honest, I think that is a really good idea because it does. It's inclusive. Yeah, it's inclusive. And it makes, exactly. Yeah. It's making them part of the group yeah. and the group norms are X, Y, Z. So I thought that was such interesting research, particularly if you're trying to wrangle little kids at the moment in lockdown. Now, that is good research and that is from PLOS One. But by the way, what, I keep saying this research from PLOS. What is PLOS? Can you tell us what PLOS is? That's, do you know, I should know that, Dr. Mal. Um, can I get back to you on that? It's, <laughs> it's online. It's an online I know, but lots journal. Of, yeah. I, I think it's got something like it's – is it – I don't know. We Ma- will get maybe uh, Dr. McQueen might know. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do. What, we'll, what, what Here we'll, he comes. Yeah, but we're supposed to introduce him after oh, his sorry, segment. Oh, sorry, sorry. Oh, Mark, you can't come on now because you oh, don't really exist sorry. to us. So we're you gonna don't t- exist. You don't exist. No, no, Mark, sorry. You do exist. We're going to do some research in the next uh, 60 seconds whilst we play these uh, sponsorship cards to find out what PLOS One actually is. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Do you know what I forgot to do, EpiPen? Because I was thrown by your introducing Mark <gasps> twenty minutes early. Oh, you did, no, you did speak about him in the introduction. Though. Yeah, I know. Well, I did. I know. Um, I forgot to introduce Amber. Hello, Amber. Hang on, let me put you on the uh, on the blower. Amber. Hello, how are you going? Very well, thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming on to our show. And Amber works with... Spleen Australia. Spleen Australia. I was going to say you. Works with... I can't say that. No, you can't because 
Because I'm EpiPen. You're EpiPen. I, I work in the uh, allergy unit. Don't I? <laughs> oh my goodness, this show's getting more and more confusing. Sunday mornings during lockdown. What's up? Just so Amber, um, you uh, work with Splint Australia, and but you're actually here with us today because you've recently been the recipient of eye surgery, and you are going to keep us all honest. So if one of us says, "Oh, eye surgery," it's a walk in the park. It's easy, no worries. You'll go. Well, hang on. This and this happened. Is that cool? Yes, I will do that. Fantastic stuff. And <laughs> and we also have Ian Wishart. And Ian, thank you so much for taking time to, to come on to our little radio show this morning. You are the CEO of the Fred Hollows Foundation. Um, you've been in the that position for about two years. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, just coming up three now. It's great oh. to be with you. Yeah, well, thank you so much for, for, for joining us. Now, for the one or two people in Australia who don't know about the Fred Hollows uh, Foundation, tell us about that. I think to understand the Fred Hollows Foundation, you've, you've got to think about Professor Fred Hollows. He was uh, an Australian ophthalmologist who, who became Australian of the Year in 1990. That was the same year that Cathy Freeman was the young Australian of the Year, if you can remember back those years. And uh, Fred, Fred, Fred didn't get his for sport, uh, but he did get it for his humanitarian work. Mm. So he began his work assisting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with eye health mm. and also with their medical work. And then he expanded overseas to help train doctors in eye doctors, particularly in Vietnam and Eritrea. And that's how the foundation began because on his deathbed, unfortunately, his friends rallied around and started the foundation and it's continued his work. It, I mean, it certainly is a, one of the, probably one of the most high profile uh, aid foundations in Australia. Um, and it certainly has received a lot of support. I mean, the, those images of him treating kids, they're very powerful images, aren't they? Yeah, it's incredible. Um, you know, he, I've met the young fellow, there's a kind of a Fantastic photograph of him treating a young boy in Vietnam. His name is Yap, and I've actually met Yap. He went on to be a, a school teacher, and now he's uh, working in an insurance company. But he's he still remembers <laughs> Professor Fred Hollows, and he's very thankful for the treatment he received. Yeah. But we've now uh, two point five million people have had their vision restored as wow. a result of the foundation. We're hoping that uh, we'll close in on about three million. Um, in the next year or so. That is incredible. Tell us, what's, uh, where, where are you uh, working at the moment in terms of countries around the world? Oh, that's an, one of the fantastic stories of how many countries we've actually extended to. We're in 25 countries now. Mm -hmm. So we're working in East Africa, places like Kenya and Ethiopia, Eritrea. We're also in um, Palestine, um, Bangladesh, in uh, Pakistan, and across into Southeast Asia with Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia. So it's, it's really extensive, the work, um, and uh, powerful testimony to the vision that Fred had of uh, anyone anywhere in the world who needs help with their eyes should be able to access it. Mm. That's what he, he believed. You shouldn't be suffering with avoidable blindness, as mm. he put it. Mm. And what's, what are the most common sorts of operations you're doing? So the most common form of operation would be a cataract operation. Um, we all have a, a little lens in our eyes um, that's normally clear, and that's what 
you know, gives us our refraction, gives us our sight, essentially, and it reflects onto the retina. Um, but sometimes that little lens goes very cloudy and then it goes really white and you can't even see a thing out of it. So um, there's about 43 million people in the world. Many of them have cataracts and it's eminently treatable. Uh, and about four out of five people who of that 43 million who are blind can be treated and have their sight restored, but they just cannot get access to it. Mm. So with a cataract operation, you make a, an incision in the eye, you take out that lens and you put in a small plastic or acrylic lens. Uh, operation might take 15, 20 minutes and you have a patch on for a day. The next day you, sh you can see again. And I've, I've literally seen that. It's like a, it's like a miracle. Mm. Mm. And that just takes 15 minutes to, to do the operation. Correct, yes. Oh, that's incredible. Um, uh, Fred and his great friend from a, Nepal, Dr. Ruit, a Nepalese eye doctor, they actually invented a new kind of surgery called the small incision surgery, mm. um, which you can use in developing countries at relatively low cost. Mm. And that was the big challenge that Fred faced. Mm. When, he, when he started, the only way to treat cataract was actually to take the lens out and give people Coke bottle glasses. Mm. So... He, he said, this is absolutely appalling. We have to give them lenses, intraocular mm. lenses. But the big companies were charging 300, 400 US dollars. He said, this is, this is crazy. They wouldn't lower the price for him. So he said, damn it, I'll build my own factory. That factory still exists today in Nepal, churning out low-cost lenses at about $5 to $7. That's how we can do it. Wow. So... Um, you know, he was a real visionary, absolutely visionary. Mm -hmm. So um, cataract operations would be the number one operation. Mm. Are th do you do – you must do other sorts of operations as well, I imagine. Yeah, there's lots of different eye diseases mm. and, um, you know, uh, probably the, the one that we don't see so much of in Australia except in very remote communities now is trachoma, mm -hmm. which is actually an eye disease. It's an infectious disease. And – uh, we, uh, by treating with antibiotics and also improving hygiene, you can eliminate trachoma mm. because it it causes the eyelashes to scratch the eye and eventually cause the blindness. So that's mm. that's the most infectious kind. But there's other things uh, like pressure in the eye, which mm. is glaucoma. Increasing rapidly is... Um, diabetic retinopathy, which mm. is damage to the vessels, blood vessels of the eye mm. Mm. caused by, you know, this uh, surge of um, diabetes around mm. the world. But actually, the crazy thing is that there's about 1.2 billion people in the world who have some form of blindness or vision impairment that needs treating. The vast majority of them just need a pair of glasses. Mm. Glasses were invented in the 13th century mm. and we're still not getting glasses to people. Mm. It's crazy. So we do, we do quite a lot of, uh, technically it's called refractive error, but it's basically prescribing glasses. All right. So a lot of, the, a lot of your work is just prescribing simple intervention, prescribing glasses. Simple intervention. Wow. Uh, it, 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 it's, uh, I mean, in this country... You know, I myself suffer from um, short-sightedness mm. and I 
expect to be able to turn up to an optometrist. I know that they're well regulated. I know that when they prescribe, I will get the right pair of glasses and I can afford the glasses. Each of those steps is often not present. So in in a developing world, low resource country, you know, there might not be an optometrist. They might not be trained well. <laughs> Even the prescription might not be right. You might not be able to afford the glasses. And then sometimes the glasses, are, even if you can afford them, they're not available in the market. So it's like people end up with no glasses. Um, Ian, we've, we know in Melbourne there's the eye and ear hospital. While um, you're focusing on eye um, fixing people with blindness and eye illnesses and diseases, have you been approached to expand that to ears, to hearing? Yeah, we... Um we get a lot of requests to expand our work um, either into adjacent fields like ears or uh, even within eye health. Of course, there's a huge need, a disability need for people who have blindness that's not curable. Um, and we've taken a kind of position that we don't want to be stretched thin. We want to be really good at what we do and keep focused because it's it's incredibly easy sort of to take on all the needs but then not being really fantastic at what you do. But we do partner with other organisations who fill in the gaps and we, we're trying to design our services so that it, you know, where possible it's kind of like a one-stop shop mm. for people. So we might be adjacent to other providers of services so it's a big challenge for charities to avoid getting stretched too thin. This is all um, so exciting to hear, Ian, and, and I myself am slightly short-sighted, so I've definitely benefited from glasses too. Um, I was going to ask about, I suppose, when the Fred Hollows Foundation was starting out and going into those remote communities, how did they um, sort of, I suppose, encourage people to come and get these eye operations done? I wonder if there was any kind of uh, mistrust or just being a little bit concerned what you're going to cut open my eye like how, how was that education done with those communities yeah that's a great question uh the human condition is the same all over the world we're all incredibly protective of our eyes we have a kind of visceral reaction if somebody goes to touch our eyes or even to touch our eyes ourselves especially the eyeball so um we uh, we, we use kind of counsellors or community support workers who um, explain the process. And we also, of course, use referrals from people who've had successful surgery done. I mean, I met a guy in Nepal. His name was Ramesh. He was blind in both eyes with cataract at age 37. He'd been blind for two years. And, you know, he, he was hesitating to come but eventually our counsellors convinced him to come he came with 300 other people to the monastery where we we had set up the surgery and um over three days we restored the sight of those 300 people and Ramesh you know he was he was really fragile when I first met him but when he had his sight restored the old Ramesh came back and he was a cheeky fellow and he was going to go back to the village and, and get back into the farming. So um, uh, it's, a, it's a great story, you see, 
uh, and he will be a testimony, a testifier to to this is this is possible, and it's it's uh, quite quick and relatively painless. Um, Ian, while you're in, on the, in the fields or the staff are, are you doing any research? Are you looking at how things could be changed or the lenses that are put in could be modified or are you doing follow-up or any research in that sort of setting? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we do a lot of research. We have a, a research team um, based both in Sydney, Melbourne and uh, around the world. And we do a lot of research um, to see, you know, things like diabetic retinopathy. Uh, we're looking at how um, how successful the, the the process is. There's a compliance by patients is a is a big issue in those areas. So we do a lot of research understanding what helps patients to comply with the treatments. Um, we don't do what we call fundamental eye research, which is, you know done in universities, but we do take research that's been done or new technologies that have been done and translate them to lower cost and uh, applicable in a low-resource country, That which is what Fred did with the original intraocular lens. You know, he, he took a $300, $400 lens and he turned it into a $5, $7 one. Mm. That's what we need. And there are some great technologies coming on but they're still prohib- prohibitively expensive at the moment to roll out in low-resource countries. How do you resource the workforce? I mean, where do you get your ophthalmologists, your nurses and technicians from? We, uh, we train our own. <laughs> right. uh, we, we, uh, we've, we've trained, uh, you know, tens of thousands of uh, nurses and ophthalmologists or eye doctors in my layman's terms um, and uh, you know just before Fred died he made a commitment to Vietnam he said I'm going to train your doctors in um, intraocular lens surgery and he he took him he took the tubes out of his himself in hospital put himself on the plane for his last ever trip and did the first training of Vietnamese surgeons in uh, cataract surgery with with lenses. His friends followed it up and completed the work after his death. That's how the foundation became came about. But he was absolutely committed that about the self determination mm-hmm. of people mm-hmm. to solve their own eye health problems. Mm-hmm. So they have to have local doctors. So they're local doctors, trained local doctors. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow, yes. I, didn't, I actually didn't know that. Um, now, if people want to get involved, donate, learn more about the Fred Hollows Foundation, what should they do? I mean, they could hop on the internet, um, but are there other things you'd like people to get involved with? Yeah, I mean, the, the simplest thing, of course, is to go online to hollows.org um, and, uh, you know, make a donation, educate yourself about our work. You can also ring on our 1-800-352-352 number. Uh, we also use volunteers in Australia, um, you know, helping with administration, helping with fundraising. Okay. Uh, we we also use uh, some professional volunteers who help us with things like um, desk studies, research, etc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always a busyness around. Well, there was a busyness around the office prior to <laughs> prior to um, COVID. Uh, a lot of it's online now. You know, a lot of virtual stuff. Mm. Um, 
because we're still only partially back in the office. Mm. Oh, I meant to ask you, how has the pandemic actually affected um, your work overseas? Look, gosh, the first three months of the pandemic really hit our uh, delivery of what we call our outputs. Mm. So a lot of hospitals, eye hospitals, were diverted to a kind of COVID preparedness. Um, slowly they've been, you know, getting the necessary PPE and slowly coming back online to do surgeries. But sadly, COVID has created quite a big backlog of cataract surgeries and other eye treatments that need doing. So it's been a struggle. Um, in fact, we, it's and, and the other thing is up and down. You know, Vietnam was doing brilliantly. Mm. And then you, you've seen in the news that mm, yeah. it's just been hit by the latest variant and now it's in a, a big slowdown in terms of eye surgery mm. because of all the isolation that's going on. So it's 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 like a juggling act at the moment. Yeah, I think uh, for a lot of organisations, certainly. Thank you so yeah. much, Ian, for, uh, for coming on the show this Thank morning. Thank you, Ian. Um, I mean, we could speak to you for hours, but uh, hopefully we'll get you back on uh, another point uh, uh, later on. You are listening to uh, Radiotherapy. This is 3RRR. The time is 10.35. With me, Dr. Mal, is Nurse EpiPen and Dr. G-Spot. We've got Amber listening to us in the background, taking notes, taking us to task later on. We've just been speaking with Ian Wishart, who uh, is the CEO of the Fred Hollows Foundation. We are going to play some sponsorship announcements, and then we're going to come back with Dr. Mark McComb, who um, I've got... Uh, McComb, sorry. I've got some corker questions to ask him. Oh, me too, me too, me too. I've, in fact, a couple of my friends said, oh, you're speaking to an ophthalmologist on the show. We've got some questions. <laughs> so... so Hang about, and we'll be back after this. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. I was discussing with. Um Nurse EpiPen before the show. Don't look at the clock to try and hurry me up. We're talking about a conversation. <laughs> I've got so many questions for Mark. Okay, well, I won't yeah. tell you my... No, yeah, I was going to say... Go on. My, my wife and I have got this thing called a, a coma song. Like, if one of us is in a coma, what song can the other one play to spontaneously get us, the, the one in a coma, out of the coma? Like, it just evokes so much memories. And my coma song is I Envy the Wind by Lucinda Williams, which is the most beautiful, beautiful song. And I actually didn't know what the – like, I just loved the song. And then I told um, – who was it? Tim Thorpe one day. I said, oh, I, I love this song. He goes, oh, yeah, it's about the wind and how it touches her like it touches him. And I thought, oh, that's what it's about. <laughs> okay, I'll move off me. Hey, um, we are now speaking with Dr. Mark McComb. And we've got Amber there in the background, keeping us honest. Amber, keeping us honest. Um, Mark is Director of Ophthalmology at the Victorian Eye and Ear Hospital. Welcome, Mark. Well, thanks, Dr. Mel. Um, lovely to have you on. Now, before we even, we even venture into your topic for the day, <clears throat> I've been asked to ask you this question. Why is it that so many ophthalmologists wear glasses, and yet we hear about this wonderful uh, eye, corrective eye surgery? Tell me, tell me. Um, I don't really have a very good answer for you for that. Um, the, there are certainly, uh, colleagues of mine that have had, um, uh, corrective or refractive eye surgery, either with uh, surgery or with laser. Mm. Um, but you're right. 
Many haven't, and there are plenty of ophthalmologists wandering around with glasses. Um, Is it to make them look intelligent? That was my theory, because that's why I got glasses <laughs> in high school, because I was so happy. I thought, oh, I look really intelligent. Well, certainly, yeah, no, certainly some of, some of my colleagues could do with a bit of that. Um, <laughs> I, think, um, I, I think that sometimes, certainly in some cases, um, the quality of the vision after some of the refractive surgery and laser is not absolutely quite as good as it is with glasses. And uh, particularly if you're engaging in eye surgery, mm. looking down microscopes mm. and what have you, mm -hmm. I mean, you really do need to have absolutely the best quality vision you can get. Um, I think the other thing is that it's also, you know, these things, these uh, operations are procedures and every, uh, surgical procedure has got a risk and the risk might be you know one in a thousand or you know very very small but it still exists and um, I guess uh, anybody whether they're an eye doctor or a lay person if you like um, has to think really carefully about doing yeah, it. Yeah yeah sure that makes sense. Yeah. Um, now tell us you're I mean you are director of ophthalmology at uh, a pretty august institution uh, well, I just I think I'd just qualify that by saying that it's a grand sounding title for a, a job that means lots of corridor conversations <laughs> and running between administration and, and and my medical colleagues. So it's not I'm not really directing anything, so to speak. Well, don't put yourself down, mate. It's a pretty impressive title. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it if you don't want. Um, just tell us about your day to day. I was going to ask you about your day to day job. What do you do? Uh, well, I'm I'm an ophthalmologist. I'm uh, I uh, have for many years just worked uh, in the area of the retina, uh, the diseases and surgery of the retina. Uh, and as one of my friends said to me, I think at a, when I was getting married, I think he said, how can you possibly take somebody seriously who's interested in only four square centimetres of the body? <laughs> <laughs> um, but... but um, so I'm interested in things like um, diabetes, uh, retinal detachments, uh, injuries, um, that, you know, that sort of, um, that sort of work. Mm. Um, yeah. All right. And actually, look, I, I actually want to ask Amber uh, her impression of her surgery. Amber, you had corrective surgery. Can you just tell us a bit about what your problems were about the surgery and then the result? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was short-sighted. Um, so I had my first correction 12 years ago. So I was 22. So I was pretty young when I had it. Um, and they did tell me that I would probably need a retreatment when I got to, you know, my early 30s. And I've just had that retreatment two weeks ago. Um, so, so I was aware of that. Um, and I suppose I just played up the, you know, risk versus benefits, you know, potentially I wouldn't get, you know, uh, as as um, Mark was saying, you know, perfect vision without glasses, but I thought it was worth a try. <laughs> um, and I know that when I get older, I'll probably need reading glasses. Um, so the actual procedure that I had to have um, was different to LASIK, which I think is um, where they just cut the flap in the um, cornea. So um, that one is apparently quite painless and quick recovery. Um, my corneas are too thin, so I had to have PRK. So that one, I've had a little bit more of a, you know, difficult, painful recovery, but only for a few days. 
Um, the actual procedure is a bit surreal. Um, they, you know, prep your eye and it feels very strange. You know, they keep it open with a speculum and um, clean it and scrape off the protective layer and they pulled out a little electric toothbrush type um, uh, tool and, uh, you know, that was a bit little bit daunting, but you can't feel anything except a bit of pressure because they numb your eye, thank sure. goodness. Yeah. Um, and then they put a protective lens on and the actual laser part of it only takes about, for me, it was 10 to 15 seconds where that reshapes the um, cor uh, the cornea, or I'm not sure. Um, and The eye. Eye, yes, exactly. <laughs> it's part of the eye. Um, and then it was all over. Um, get home rest for a few days and my vision is um is pretty good now I I can see everything um on a computer close up uh it's a little bit difficult um looking at my phone things like that so my social media usage has <laughs> been you know pretty good the last couple of weeks um so I think I'll achieve the best vision that I can have from this surgery in a couple more weeks mm -hmm. um and you just have to be really diligent with eye drops um, antibiotic eye drops and um, anti-inflammatory eye drops. So the result last time was really, really good. Obviously, it didn't last forever like I knew it probably wouldn't. Um, but I had, you know, a good um, mm -hmm. probably eight years with no glasses. And Amber, what was it like um, thinking about going into theatre? So Ian touched on, you know, people being a bit anxious about um, having an eye operation because losing your vision is so you know, important. Um, how was it for you? Um, I think that I knew that losing my vis vision completely was a tiny risk. And from what I understand, it hasn't happened in Australia from laser vision correction, but I could be wrong. Mark, let me know if I am wrong. Um, so, of course, it's a bit nerve-wracking. Um, they do give you something to help with that, <laughs> thank goodness. But, you know, just weighing up the risks and benefits. And I'm not someone who gets overly uh, scared of you know, surgical procedures or things to do with the eye. So um, I wasn't you know, incredibly worried. But it's definitely a little bit, you know, a little bit nerve-wracking. Mm, yeah. mm. Hey, Mark, we're going to switch topics for a second. Um, you've got an interest in... Uh, syphilitic eye disease, is that right? Um, it's not the only thing I'm interested no, in. No, this, but but an, I, no, <laughs> no, it's an interest, not that interest. An, an interest. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's certainly topical at the moment. Um, there's been some recent publicity because there's been a dramatic uh, rise in the number of cases in the country and, and certainly in Melbourne. Um, you know, the last... Uh, three or four years, there's been about a 50% increase in the number of cases in Melbourne, um, and that's quite significant. And we've noticed, um, you know, at the eye hospital, the idea hospital, where uh, in the early 2000s we would be lucky to see one or two cases a year of um, syphilitic infections in the eye. We, uh, in 2019, I think we saw over 20 cases. Gee, what was, uh, what was the reason for that? Um, well, the numbers of the, the the numbers of people with the infection with with syphilis in the in the community here has gone up dramatically. So, in, to give you a couple of figures, um, in 2015 there were about 950 cases uh, recorded in Melbourne. Uh, in 2018, that had jumped up to about 1,400, and the 
striking thing about this is that there's been an over 200% increase in the rate of infections in women. Um, and that's particularly troubling because of the risk. Most of these infections are in women of childbearing age. And it's particularly troubling because of the risk of congenital syphilis. No, it's troubling anyway, but particularly, yeah. So, yeah. so it's, it's, um, it's really, and it doesn't, I think from what I've read, there doesn't seem to be any signs of it slowing down. And uh, why it's so critical is that there's a very, very effective treatment if, um, uh, you know, if it's given early. Yeah. And, you know, if it's left untreated, you know, for, in, my, in my little world, it'll cause blindness. So it's, um, yeah. Um, Mark, I've got a question. Um, some people get confused with optometrists and ophthalmologists in what they can diagnose and what they do. Could you just step the listeners through what the differences are and ha ha what scope optometrists have, please? Well... The um, optometrist is a it's a science degree, and um, the role is um, certainly um, uh, refraction, you know, in, in, certainly in glasses. But they also have a very important role in uh, screening, uh, some adjunctive um, assistance with uh, uh, following patients, say with glaucoma, for example. Um, where the ophthalmologists are, it's a basic medical degree followed by uh, four or five years of um, ophthalmology training in a, pro in a program. Um, that's sort of probably the essential things. Um, ophthalmologists perform surgery. Um, um, I mm. guess there's a... It's like psychiatrist and psychologist, yeah? No? It's like, uh, no? Yeah, possibly. Is that the yeah, same? G-spot, yeah, yeah. 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 do you want to... Do you wanna, Take me to task on that. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> I'm joking. Um, so Go while, ahead. <laughs> while we've got an expert on the panel, um, what about eye health? What can we do to, you know, look after our eyes so that we don't lose vision, diminish? Well, visions? I think Penny, uh, if you pen the um, probably the most important thing is um, is prevention. And um, and catching disease before it gets out of hand when it and you know while it can be relatively easily treated and it's when you catch these things at early stages that you get the best results of treatment and diabetes for example is a really good example of a very very common problem in the in our community which has the potential to cause terrible uh, blindness. But if you catch it early enough, you know, the treatments these days are incredibly effective. Do you use um, a laser? Is that what you do for, for diabetic? Well, it's, it's, part of the, it's part of the toolbox yeah. um, uh, in some cases. And laser treatment, again, if, you, if we find it, if we find the problems in the retina, uh, which is the nerve layer at the back of the eye, a bit like the film in a camera, we found the problems in the retina early enough before they are actually causing any problems with the vision, then we treat them and the, with laser and the, and the treatment is really um, very effective. If we find them once people have uh, started to lose vision, then we're continually, continually playing catch up. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and this, you know, diabetes in this country is an enormous problem. You know, we've got 1.8 
million Australians with mm-hmm. diabetes. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1.3 we know about and another half a, half a million that we don't know about. So, and about a third of those will have some problems with their retina and about a third of that third will have sight-threatening um, yeah, so it's pretty. It's a pretty significant problem. The other way we treat, increasingly commonly now, we treat uh, some of the problems with diabetes is using drugs that we inject into the eye, which has become a is become in fact much much more common now than using laser treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, uh, but if again, you know, if you've got diabetes and if you're young or relatively or, re- or you know recently diagnosed, then you must get your eyes checked uh get them looked at is um you know is, is the take-home message um thanks so much for those tips mark i was just going to do a throwback to the plus question earlier in the show public library of science which is where i came up with this question mark no I'm, actually this is um a personal a personal story i was um having my eyes tested and um, my optometrist said that um, it looked like I had a scratch in my eye and he assumed it was from a mascara wand. But I wasn't using mascara at the time, but it just got me thinking, so is any of these kind of makeup, uh, fake eyelash trends, are we having more scratches in people who wear makeup's eyes as a result of like cosmetic work around the eye? Uh, Listen, I don't know. Uh, I, I certainly don't know any facts and figures about that, and it's not the sort of thing I tend to see in my practice. But mm. I would imagine that it makes sense that the more you poke around your eye with um, a sharp stick, that you're going to cause problems like that. So uh, it does seem intuitive, yeah. I think so. Like I just see people putting on eyeliner and accidentally stab themselves in the eye, and I'm like, oh, maybe... Maybe we should lay off the eye makeup a bit, particularly during COVID when we're not getting out as much. So I'm wondering if that's a bit of an eye health tip, just lay (laughs) off the eye makeup a bit. Good one. Um, I'm just going to, because we have to end on time today. Um, even though we could as probably, every day. No, but, but, but as we, we always well, we go always over do. and we always want our guests to come back. But um, Gemma start, or Dr G-Spot started this thing and it's um, to do with a joke. So here's my joke. I love eye jokes. The cornier, the better. Oh, ah! <laughs> oh that is just, that's a scalp. Now, if we haven't that's just terrible. lost 30% of our listeners, <laughs> come back. <laughs> um, that is absolutely fantastic. Hey, Mark, very, very, very quickly, because we've got about 20 seconds left. What what was the antecedent for that increase in uh, syphilis, the syphilis outbreak? Because that's just extraordinary. I can't let that go. Um, I think it's people um, being sort of a bit more relaxed about yeah. um, safe, you know, safe sex yeah. practices. Oh, yeah. I, I thought so. Yeah. Thank you. Look, yeah. look, we could um, delve into that in a lot more detail. And there are like a million questions we all want to ask you. But thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Mark McComb, Director Director of Ophthalmology at the Victorian Eye and Ear Hospital. Thank you also to uh, Ian Wishart, who... Um, is the CEO of the Fred Hollows Foundation. Thank you also to everybody listening. Thank you to Amber for coming on the show. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. 
Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.